thinking and ethics of gender exploration against delaying transition for transgender and gender creative youth by florence ashley published in clinical child psychology and psychiatry 2019. introduction youths explore their gender both theirs and those of others Exploration is not only a vessel of discovery and understanding, but also of creation. It's not only about unearthing a pre-existing truth, but also making that truth for ourselves. Even though I experienced gender dysphoria vis-a-vis -vis my beard, my conscious decision not to continue with electrolysis has allowed me to develop a stronger sense of myself as a person outside the binary, although I remain well-shaved most of the time. In her article in the present issue, Wren claims that clinicians are obliged to consider whether more time for exploration is needed by any child or family before embarking on a medical intervention, given the impacts of partly irreversible treatments years after they were initiated. A golden thread running through Wren's article is the view that exploration as a process must precede transition because transition forecloses future life possibilities. In this article, I will argue that such a conception of exploration is mistaken and propose an alternative view of exploration. My article will center an ethics of exploration in rethinking what it means to transition socially and medically for trans and gender creative youth. An ethics of gender exploration in this context is the process of deliberately centering our ethical thinking around the notion of exploration to try and see how it can shed a different light on an ethical issue. An ethics of exploration can be put in contrast to an ethics of prediction, which centers the question of how the child will evolve. Prediction, like exploration, is subject to multiple elucidations. It could mean centering the prediction of future gender identity, but also whether a choice will be found to be regrettable in the future. An ethics of exploration does not provide us with absolute answers since exploration is not the only relevant factor to ethical choice. Still, it can serve as a heuristic, an additional tool in our ethical vocabulary through which we can further our, th our thinking on moral questions. Leaving behind prediction altogether, the present article proposes an ethical conceptualization of transition that takes exploration at its word and in doing so is more in line with the gender affirmative approach. In contrast to Wren's view that exploration precedes transition, I will venture to spell out how taking up a vision of the self as dynamic and relationally constituted as Wren does leads to the conclusion that exploration is not prior to transition but operates through and alongside transition. Although many trans and cis people experience gender in whole or in part as something that is discovered and affirmed, many of us see it as constituted by exploration. Under this lens, gender is tentative. It is always provisional and improvisational. If that is so, then transitioning both socially and medically is an integral part of exploring ourselves as autonomous gendered beings. Delaying transition to facilitate exploration, then, would make little sense. Views of exploration, views of self. Queer is not something that is given to us in totality. Some parts are given, our body, though it changes, but most parts are not. Few of us are spawned into the world already enjoying art. We learn to enjoy art by learning about it and by enjoying it with others.
An integral part of my enjoyment of brutalist architecture is how it provokes in me endless daydreaming of socialist utopias. Scott Whiskey is something that I enjoy with my father, with long discussions of its flavor profile with scented hints of caramel and honey in the suburban backyards of my childhood home. Now that I have moved to the city, my enjoyment of scotch has far diminished. Whether we view gender as a component of the self that is given to us or not has significant implications for how we view exploration and its role in relation to desire and assent to social transition, puberty blockers, and hormone replacement therapy. If we see gender as given, as Rand notes, then the role of the clinician is to determine whether expressions of gender are authentic with sufficient certainty, and once this certainty is ascertained, to provide requested treatment. Rand disagrees with this view of gender as given, as she highlights, quote, who someone is can also comprise perspective, outlook, or viewpoint, i.e. their more considered wants and desires, care, concerns, standards, values, and commitments. This is a characterization of autonomy as a complex process of interpretation and negotiation, determined by multiple developmental influences combining to prevent to provide a sense of identity. On this model, a sense of self builds up from experience, from a person's earliest choices and motivations. It is a model that implies that for children and adolescents, their deepest values and concerns might not be fully clear or delineated until they confront a wider diversity of types of situations than most children and young adolescents face." End quote. This vision of gender as dynamic and relationally constituted is reminiscent of feminist metaphysics, which have highlighted the social construction of gender and the relational nature of the self. Although the gender-affirmative approach to trans youth has frequently been associated with the view gender is given, it has been explicitly rejected by many theorists of the approach. Of course, rejecting the view that gender is a given and that trans people are quote-unquote born this way does not mean that gender at any specific point in time is not relatively stable and resistant to change. The contrast between theorizations of gender as given and gender as dynamic is related but distinct from various modes of trans embodiment. In my previous work, I have proposed three distinct types of relationship to the body, which may lead trans people to seek transition-related care. Gender dysphoria, gender euphoria, and creative transfiguration. Gender dysphoria refers to a ne negative, distressing experience of the body as differing from our gendered self-image. Gender euphoria is its positive homologue, an experience of distinct enjoyment or satisfaction caused by the correspondence between a person's gender identity and gendered features associated with a gender other than the one assigned at birth. Creative transfiguration, however, is wholly other. Putting a name to this experience, which I saw in the experiences of many trans people and the precious work of transmasculine theorists, spoke of the irreducible creativity of gendered embodiment for some trans people. Quote, trans embodiment can be irreducibly creative. Creativity is one of the manifold ways in which we may assert ownership of our bodies, transforming them into an art piece that is truly ours out of previously alienating flesh. End quote. Gender dysphoria and gender euphoria could be recast as a form of theatrical gender subjectivity, 
as opposed to improvisational. There's a sense in which finding our gender through dysphoria and or euphoria feels like unearthing a preconstituted image of the self, and this even if we acknowledge and realize that they are both dynamic and relationally constituted. Transition then may be metaphorically compared to an, an actor recycling lines from a script written uniquely for them. It is the actualization of a pre-written and coherent vision of the self. If gender dysphoria and euphoria can be cast as theatrical, then creative transfiguration brings out more of a metaphor of improvisation. Unlike theatrical gender subjectivity, which may not feel dynamic and relationally constituted, even though it is, creative transfiguration feels creative through and through. There is no sense of unearthing a preconstituted image of the self, but a sense of actively creating ourselves, like someone creating a character that best represents them in a video game. Yes, I know I'm not an elf, but somehow an elf character seems to best capture my spirit. By understanding trans people's experiences of gender as not only rooted in gender dysphoria, but also in gender euphoria and creative transfiguration, we can better make sense of how trans people experienced in gender sometimes as given, sometimes not, while also remaining committed to view the self as dynamic and relationally constituted. Commitment to either a view of gender as given or gender as dynamic bears significant implications for the role of exploration in the clinical context. For Ren, quote, the ethical picture is complicated if we give way to the real possibility of a child or young person's identification continuing to evolve over time and their levels of distress in relation to identity slash body incongruence fluctuating with and without medical intervention, end quote. Unfortunately, Ren mistakenly takes the need for more curiosity and exploration as warranting further delaying of transition generating a tension between the perhaps unwarranted need for caution and the undesirability of clinicians who, paralyzed by uncertainty, endlessly defer transition. As will become clear in the next section, understanding exploration and curiosity is something that occurs through transition instead of primarily before it allows us to resolve this apparent tension. On the contrary, the best form that this curiosity and exploration can take is the bracketing of the question of authenticity. If the self is fundamentally dynamic and relational, then asking whether a person's experience of gender is authentic makes little sense. No one would say that my enjoyment of art is inauthentic because I learned to like art by visiting museums with my best friend. No one's experience of gender is free from social influences. To think that they make gender less authentic would be to mistake gender for something that is fundamentally not dynamic and relational. Although there is room for confusion about gender, anyone who claims to have a clear understanding of gender being a liar, liar, pants on fire, supporting someone through confusion and helping them understand themselves is completely different from assessing authenticity. Gender identities are not authentic or inauthentic, they simply are. If we're committed to the view that gender is dynamic and relationally constituted, then our answer to Ren's question of, quote, how do we assure the authenticity of any young person's choice of treatment, end quote, is that we simply do not. Before moving on to the next section, I want to draw out a further implication of gender as dynamic and relational. 
Tim Meadows' recent book on trans youth eloquently questioned the relationship between trauma and gender. Quote, if it is possible to understand gender as an improvisational possibility within a scene of constraint, relational and produced through the interaction of individuals, it's not a huge leap to imagine that some forms of gender could be made of scar tissue, produced as much by trauma as by tenderness. But it's a quick and dangerous slide from thinking about gender deviance as compensatory and thinking it pathological. And if gender deviance is a maladaptation, then those of us with atypical gender presentations are, in fact, damaged goods. How do we disentangle gender from the many complex interacting factors that produce it? And is there a way to take seriously the question of gender as an adaptation without understanding it as pathology? All gender is adaptation, a call for recognition. The mistake lies in thinking of it as somehow less real, less constitutive of selfhood, less central to psychic life." End quote. A corollary of the belief that gender is always already socially influenced and in flux is that the sort of social influence, so long as it remains influence rather than coercion and manipulation, doesn't matter. Gender identities born out of trauma, out of scar tissue, are no less legitimate than any other gender identity born out of the manifold intersections of biology, learning, attachment, cognition, transference, and so on. Significant controversy exists over ideology, over which factor influence gender identity. Pathologizing accounts of gender variants have frequently foregrounded trauma and co-occurring mental illnesses as causes. But once we understand gender as normally dynamic and relationally constituted, like many other elements of the self, then such pathologizing accounts must be rejected. This accords with the intuition shared by many clinicians that ideology is not determinative of treatment ethics. Selves born out of trauma are no less selves. The ethical role of exploration. Favoring choices that least restrict children's future options is wise, but because Wren believes that steps taken towards transitioning foreclose future options and fails to give due weight to how delaying transitioning is also an act of foreclosure, she sees exploration as a step prior to transition. The stance is hard to reconcile with her commitment to gender as dynamic and relational. Since gender is not something given that we need to unearth, but something that remakes itself, the same or anew, over and over again as we gather new experiences of the world, the moment of transition is not ethically special from the standpoint of exploration. Transitioning is just another way we explore our gender. We can see this most clearly in older adolescents and adults. Earlier in their transition, my partner expressed uncertainty regarding which name and pronouns they felt most favorable towards. We decided to try different combinations of names and pronouns over a period of weeks. The resulting choice was not final, and they later changed their name a second time. The same partner later began to take low doses of testosterone, and they stopped a few months later, only to later resume taking testosterone as they realized that they were more comfortable on it. They are uncertain as to how long they will continue to take it, an uncertainty with which they are perfectly comfortable and see as an integral part of their exploration of gender embodiment. Although experiences like theirs 
have been suppressed in the clinical world because of narrow views of gender exploration, non-binary identities being still routinely invalidated by clinicians, changing names and pronouns and ongoing transition-related interventions are routinely used by trans people in an exploratory manner, largely to positive effect. Exploration is not prior to transition. It comes before, during, and after it. Once we admit that gender is dynamic and relational, then there is no reason to see exploration as something that must ethically come before clinically significant choices. That transitioning might influence gender identities is not by itself a reason to delay transitioning, since identities are just as susceptible to being foreclosed by delaying transitioning than by allowing it. Youth's identities are arguably more fixed by an approach to transition that imply desire for gender stability than by one that allows them to fluctuate back and forth across boundaries of identities as they please. Halberstam, whom Ren cites, perhaps has some reasons to worry that gender variants can be prematurely stabilized into a fixed trans identity that casts their gender as something clear and true. Although the problem that they describe pales in comparison to that of lack of support, it should be noted that many non-binary people who initially identified in a binary manner anecdotally report pressures to retain those initially expressed binary identities. Many others report being forced into a certain relationship to their gender. I remember my mother telling me that I shouldn't wear certain clothes since I'm a woman now. And I've heard too many butchrans women lament the constant invalidation of their identities that they face on the part of people who see themselves as supportive. The dilemma between naturalizing trans identities and offending those identities by subjecting them to endless doubt is best resolved not by finding a means between too quickly and too slowly, but by rethinking how we understand transition and exploration. By refiguring transition as a form of open exploration of gendered feelings and moving away from viewing it as the solidification or entrenchment of the child's identity, we can leave ample room for curiosity and exploration and avoid foreclosing future possibilities without delaying transition. Transition as exploration. Narrowing future possibilities, whether through difficult to reverse bodily changes, including ones that occur on their own during puberty, or pressures to commit to a specific gender identity, often binary, are antithetical to exploration, all other things being equal. Does not to say that well-defined identities are bad, but if gender is dynamic, then we need to take into consideration the ever-present possibility that making certain bodies and identities more difficult to inhabit will cause distress and a disconnect between self-identified and other-identified gender, often experienced as gender dysphoria. Interventions such as social transition, puberty blockers, and hormone replacement therapy should not be unduly delayed solely on account of fear of uncertainty and a vague risk of distress. Gender-creative youth's actual distress is very real, and future uncertainty is an inescapable reality of gender. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Most clinicians assume that the clinical starting point should be the absence of transition, with deviations from this starting point requiring justifications. In other words, any step towards transition may be justified by showing that the child is sufficiently trans or gender creative to warrant it. Short of such a justification, the default is no transition. 
This assumption is predicated upon a social organization that centers cisgender ways of being as a default. In an alternate society that used the pronouns of the child's choice on any given day, the idea of changing pronouns as part of a social transition would not be perceived as an intervention that must be clinically justified. It would be the default, the status quo, and it's instead discouraging social transition that would be perceived as interventionist. Judging the adequacy and timeliness of each possible step of transition will depend upon the role that they can respectively play within gender exploration. The ethical considerations involved with social transition are not the same as for puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapy. Although I will discuss each in turn, they need not come in that order, nor is any mandatory. Any combination of social transition, puberty blockers, and hormone replacement therapy, in any order, temporarily or permanently alike, can be considered a successful exploration of gender if it is done at a pace and in a fashion that is well adapted to the child. Social transition. From the perspective of exploration, flexibility in the usage of name and pronoun and acceptance of varying gender expressions appears most warranted. When done in a sufficiently flexible and accepting environment, allowing people to try on and off different ways of referring to themselves enables and enhances the exploration of gendered feeling. A flexible and inviting atmosphere is crucial. Within a mindset of, of promoting exploration, an ethical approach to social transition should avoid sending a message that changes of name, pronouns, or gender expression are necessarily a form of long-term commitment. Although difficulty accepting and affirming the child's gender identity is by far the bigger problem, this is not less of concern in families often more conservatives who seek to reconfigure their narratives of family life in a more palatable manner by projecting onto their children a static and essentialized view of trans existence, under which trans people's gender identities are unchanging, binary, and lead to the approximation of the bodies of cisgender people. Practitioners and parents must be attentive to potential overcorrection, as parental affirmation of their child's gender can lead to a perception in the child that they will only be accepted if they continue to be transgender, to identify with that specific gender, or to express in a specific way, which notably risks hampering the natural development of some youth's non-binary identities and non-conforming gender expressions. Although these teachings are routinely mentioned as integral to the gender-affirmative approach and are adopted by many parents, they bear reiterating. A policy of respecting youth's latest expressed verbal and expressive preferences, no matter what they are or, often they, or how often they change, coupled with the occasional research in that the future is open and that current choices do not pre prevent or preclude different futures, appears to best facilitate exploration. This means respecting everyday gender life as a matter of course. Yeah, you should be allowed to dress how they want, use whichever pronouns they want, and use whichever name they want. Parents and clinicians, and if possible, everyone should respect those wishes. Social transition facilitates rather than inhibits gender exploration. Puberty blockers. Puberty blockers delay hormonal puberty. Discussion of the ethics of puberty blocker has largely centered on the question of reversibility. Although reversibility plays a distinctive role with regards to the foreclosing of future possibilities, 
few authors extend their foreword past it. Although taking puberty blockers is a form of medical treatment, it certainly facilitates exploration significantly more than letting puberty run its course. Whereas puberty strongly favors sense embodiment by erasing the psychological and medical toll of transitioning, puberty blockers structurally place transgender and cisgender hormonal futures in approximate symmetry. Youth who take puberty blockers have their options wide open, their bodies unaltered by either testosterone or estrogen. Although much remains unknown about the long-term effects of puberty blocker, limited empirical evidence and clinical experience make us more than justified in assuming that whatever risks puberty blockers have do not foreclose future life paths quite as much as undergoing puberty does. The neutrality of puberty blockers as opposed to unmedicated Hormonal puberty should evacuate any hesitancy towards initiating gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs for youth who desire them. From the premise that facilitating exploration must be our starting point in caring for trans and gender creative youth, puberty blockers must be seen as a default position to be readily prescribed since they leave the largest space for future identity development and negotiation. Clinician hesitancy as well as the belief that a considerable amount of prior gender exploration must be undertaken before prescribing puberty blocker appears to be unjustified and uncritical, whether it is rooted in psychological inertia or subtle prejudices towards trans lives. Hormone Replacement Therapy Whereas the role of social transition in puberty blockers is unequivocal within an ethics of exploration, there are elements of transition that plainly favor, enhances, and facilitates identity exploration, negotiation, and development. Hormone replacement therapy's explorative character is more ambiguous. To the extent that exploration does not just uncover gender, but also constitute it, hormone replacement therapy can be an integral experience for trans and gender creative individuals who are still negotiating and navigating the gendered world. It is not uncommon for older trans teenagers and trans adults to begin hormone replacement therapy tentatively, knowingly uncertain about whether they will prefer the outer body to their current one, but hoping and expecting that as their body changes, they will gain a more enlightened understanding of how they relate to their body's gendered features. At the same time, the fact that the body changes in part irreversibly does mean that after a certain amount of time on hormone replacement therapy, Users of hormone replacement therapy will never be able to inhabit an uncomplicated cis identity. They will always have a body that needs to be explained to intimate partners. Hormone replacement therapy stands in tension as both a process of exploration and as a mode of foreclosure of future possibilities. That tension must be resolved or dissolved, but the notion of exploration cannot give us a ready-made answer. The tension lies beyond the limits of exploration, although understanding how hormone replacement therapy is in and of itself a form of exploration can help us resolve that tension more fruitfully. Although I do not propose any resolution or dissolution to this tension, because a thorough discussion of the ethics of hormone replacement therapy is beyond the scope of this work, I do believe that an informed consent model best guarantees well-being and wish to offer a few comments towards an answer. Restricting future possibilities is a matter of degree, and the ills associated with hormonally altered bodies for people who may eventually opt to live in a world in concordance with the gender they were assigned at birth is easy to overstate. 
bodies that are hybrid, which fall outside of this, this normative view of the body as falling within one of two sets of gender traits, are often perceived negatively by clinicians, parents, and members of the general public. However, such attitudes may not be shared by the people to whom the bodies belong. Butch lesbians who seek out mastectomies and cis men who find pride in labeling themselves eunuchs provide us with clear examples of people whose gender identity corresponds to the gender they were assigned at birth, and yet who find no shame in having bodies that deviate from cisgender norms of embodiment. Unsurprisingly, many people who have undergone transition-related interventions and later came to identify with the gender they were assigned at birth do not regret the interventions, but are instead grateful for the opportunity it provided them. In an attempt to help clinicians understand gender-creative youth who discontinue hormonal interventions, Turban and Karoglian provided the following composite example. Quote, Eventually, Cheney informed her care team that after trial of testosterone and much reflection, she had come to understand her identity as a queer woman and wished to discontinue hormone therapy. Jamie reported being pleased about the hormone therapy trial because this allowed her to clarify her gender identity. She did not regret her social affirmation or any physical changes that occurred during this process, such as fat distribution and minor facial hair growth in the context of being otherwise being healthy. End quote. They later explained that, quote, gender exploration, including a period of testosterone therapy, was an important part of our identity formation, and she was grateful that her psychotherapist carefully facilitated her process of introspection through her transition period. She is now medically and psychologically healthy, although it is possible that she could have arrived at the same conclusions through a period of social transition alone, she responds that the changes to her body from testosterone therapy were only cosmetic and she does not regret them, end quote. Bodies that are read as transgender carry a social meaning of monstrosity. In ethical practice, it is necessary to acknowledge that such bodies need not be figured as monstrous. Clinicians surely should not contribute to perpetuating those harmful ideas, even subtly. And that, even if they are, many people do wish to be monstrous. The figure of the monster has been a recurring theme in trans literature, much like the figure of the villain has been reappropriated in queer spheres. I quote from Stryker, quote, I want to lay claim to the dark power of my monstrous identity without using it as a weapon against others or being wounded by it myself. I will say this as bluntly as I know how. I am a transsexual and therefore I am a monster. Hearken unto me, fellow creatures, I who have dwelt in a form unmatched by my desire, I whose flesh has become an assemblage of incongruous anatomical part, I who achieved the similitude of a natural body only through an unnatural process, I offer you this warning. The nature you'd bedevil me is a lie. I call upon you to investigate your nature as I have been compelled to confront mine, I challenge you to risk objection and flourish as well as I have. Heed my words, and you may well discover the seams and sutures in yourself. End quote. Poetic as it may be, and I know that poetics is not always fully appreciated in the clinical world, it speaks to an understanding of the desirability of the hybrid bodies, of bodies that differ from those assumed in a social world organized around the assumption of cisgender life. 
assuming that hybrid bodies should be discouraged or at the very least less readily accepted and accessible reflects a negative evaluation of trans embodiment healthcare and which is deeply dangerous to intersex youth. Avoidance of negative judgments towards trans embodiments has further implications when considering the relationship between exploration and hormone replacement therapy. In the context of youth care, hormone replacement therapy frequently comes following the use of puberty blockers. When assessing readiness for hormone replacement therapy in youth, the fact that their body has not yet undergone hormonal puberty in either direction is of high significance. As was mentioned in the previous subsection, puberty blockers structurally place transgender and cisgender hormonal futures in approximate symmetry. Both seizing puberty blockers to resume puberty and beginning hormone replacement therapy similarly impacts future options since the outer bodies in a more or less bimodal manner, although testosterone, is more conducive to low dosages and thus limited masculinization a treatment modality that is frequently favored by non-binary people who are assigned female at birth. To require more of youth who wish to begin hormone replacement therapy than of those who wish to cease puberty blockers, if they have not gone through puberty, would be a questionable double standard. Similar thresholds should be applied to both, and given that Lear's long use of puberty blockers should satisfy any clinician of the relative stability of transition-related desires, both options should be easy to access. The clinician's role in facilitating exploration. Setting exploration as an ethical good, we must move away from attempting to assess the truth and authenticity of assertions of gender identity. As a pamphlet developed by Canadian Trans Youth and Joins, quote, stop assessing us, end quote. Rent questions how assessments of gender of children's gender narratives can be ethically justified, suggesting a need to balance between the respect due to the seriousness and importance of a child or young person's identification and the respect due to the time and effort needed for full participation in the careful business of ethical decision-making. She further suggests that a view of the self as dynamic and relational, quote, is consistent with a higher threshold, end quote, for prescribing treatment. The sense is more reminiscent of a logic of prediction or interrogation than an ethics of exploration, despite her references to exploration. This is precisely what leads her to attempt to justify assessing trans and gender creative youth's gender narratives, thereby positioning the clinician in an oppositional rather than a supportive dynamic to the child's gender navigation. These oppositional dynamics have negative impact on youth. On the contrary, clinicians should see their role as supporting and facilitating. The goal should not be to assess the child's gender, but to provide them with tools to explore their gender subjectivity, tools which they may not have at their age. Unfortunately, gender is multifaceted and endlessly complex. Gender subjectivity carries a certain amount of ineffability, making it difficult for trans people to justify or explain their gender identity. Even after years thinking about gender identity in both scholarly and lay contexts, my own gender identity remains largely unintelligible. Would cis people be able to explain theirs with ease? Imagine how distressing it is for you to be asked to explain and justify their gender identity by people who have power over whether they can access treatment when they lack the maturity and access to theoretical paradigms which adults benefit from. 
Clinicians support exploration not by mandating it, but by making space for it on the child's own terms. If they do not wish to explore their gender with clinicians, then that's the end of the matter. Though everything we do is a form of exploration insofar as it builds a bank of experience upon which we relationally constitute ourselves, it would be inappropriate for clinicians to impose a specific manner and time for exploration. Supporting exploration does not mean asking youth to constantly justify their gender or constantly talk about it. It means making space. Clinicians should come before each child with the assumption that they carry certain cisnormative biases. Clinicians are not exempt from societal biases, and most of those biases appear natural to those holding them. Above all, a critical openness to being wrong about assessments of the clinical indicability of treatment because of underlying beliefs and attitudes about gender, life, and bodies is the mark of an ethical clinician. In assuming that their clinical recommendations do not reflect the pervasive cisnormativity of our societies, clinicians are doing a disservice to their patients and inhabiting their gender explorations, which may take them through transition. As Ren mentions, knowledge is socially situated. That we are all inescapably molded by our social context does not imply that all knowledges are equivalent, however, and much of the feminist epistemology has been dedicated to demonstrating that marginalized groups' knowledge of their own marginalization is more than often superior. Clinicians should adopt a stance of humility towards trans communities and scholars' critiques of their work and work to integrate them into their own work. A common fear is that socially transitioning and puberty blockers will make children more likely to grow up trans. That may be true, but why would it be a bad thing unless we believe that it is bad to be trans? Clinicians should ask questions like these and invite the input of trans communities as holders of privileged knowledge about transitude. It may be difficult for clinicians to engage with those questions, but moral discomfort and distress is not necessarily an indication that something is wrong. One of the first things I learned in bioethics was that oftentimes the best possible solution leaves us uneasy and unsettled. Emotions are unruly and do not readily submit to reason. Discomfort is an unfortunate but integral part of professional practice and something which practitioners may have to get used to. But discomfort also provides us with an opportunity for both moral and personal growth. Patients are not the only ones who are exploring their gender in a clinical setting. We all are. Given what was said about social transition in the previous section, clinicians will have to play a supportive role not only to children, but also to parents. Understanding why and how parents are struggling with their children's gender is crucial to fostering a healthy environment for their gender-creative kids. Some parents may experience a disruption in their life narrative, and clinicians can help them reconfigure their life story in a healthy manner by adopting the teachings of narrative ethics. Many parents will have difficulty adopting a fluid and open-ended attitude towards trying names, pronouns, and gender expressions as part of gender exploration. Reiterating that gender-creative young people will be loved and accepted however they come to identify and that they were allowed to try out different names, pronouns, and clothing styles without committing to them will inevitably be challenging for some families. 
This should be done carefully as reiterating it too often or at the wrong moments can have the effect of unintentionally communicating a preference for cis outcomes. Clinicians should support parents in navigating those difficulties and work alongside support groups for parents of trans and gender creative youth. In parallel, those support groups should ensure that they are helping parents foster fluid and open-ended environments for their children. Conclusion Beginning from the view, which I share with Ren, that gender identity is in constant evolution and is constituted through our relation to others and to the world that surrounds us, we come to the inescapable conclusion that exploration is not a step that precedes transition, but a process that operates through transition. It is impossible to conceive of a degree of exploration that would make us certain that transition will suit future identity development. Guaranteeing the stability of the self is neither possible nor desirable. Instead of interrogating youth, providers should play a supportive role. Once we recast transition in those terms, many of the moral quandaries faced by clinicians are resolved. As was shown, unbonded social transition and ready access to puberty blockers ought to be seen as the default, and it is deviations from them that warrant justification. The mere fact that transitioning might influence gender identities is not an a priori reason to delay transition, since identities are just as susceptible of being foreclosed by delaying transition than by allowing it. Social transition and puberty blockers, and to an extent hormone replacement therapy, facilitate exploration and prevent the foreclosure of identities brought on by delaying transition. Their availability should not be predicated on interrogating or the mandatory performance of exploration for the benefit of healthcare providers, but instead should be made readily available to all those who wish for them. Together, we must recognize that exploration is best fostered not by delaying transition, but through transition.